Welcome to the Autism Classroom Resources Podcast, the podcast for special educators who are looking for personal and professional development. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Reeve. For more than 20 years, I've worn lots of hats in special education, but my real love is helping special educators like you. This podcast will give you tips and ways to implement research-based practices in a practical way in your classroom to make your job easier and more effective. Welcome back to the Autism Classroom Resources Podcast. I'm so glad that you decided to join us for episode 18. We have been talking about behavioral support plans and putting them together to assure success for changing behavior. And our next step in building a behavior support plan is determining how we're going to respond when the behavior happens. We've talked so far about strategies for preventing the behavior and ways to replace the behavior, as well as skills that we need to teach to supplement those replacement skills that we're teaching. But even if we have the most kick-ass plan on the planet for this student with tons of preventive strategies and replacement skills being taught, the behavior is still going to occur at some point. And that's because human behavior is complex. It doesn't just change overnight, just like we can't change a habit overnight. So it's going to take time. And so it's critically important that this part of the plan is written out so that everyone working with the student can follow it consistently. Now, before I get started talking about strategies, I wanted to make sure that you all knew that on autismclassroomresources.com, I have a free resource library. And in addition to printables, the library includes a set of 30 videos on behavior support. Each one is less than five minutes long, and they cover preventive, replacement, and responsive strategies. So some of the strategies I'll touch on here today are described and demonstrated more in the videos on the site. And they are free to all of my newsletter subscribers. So I'll put a link in the show notes so that you can sign up for free and check them out yourself. They're just a nice tool that you can use with your team to make sure everybody is approaching things in the same way. Responsive strategies are everything that is going to happen after the behavior occurs. So it might involve redirecting, separating the student from peers for safety, or even just ignoring the behavior and continuing to present a demand. Responsive simply means that it's how we're going to respond. Keep in mind that we can respond to challenging behavior by not reinforcing or acknowledging it. Not every behavior has to have an overt response. But we need to make sure that we have written the strategies of what to do clearly for the team so that we all respond as consistently as possible. So think back to your ABC data. What consequences seem to be maintaining the behavior or keeping it going? Those are the responses that we will probably need to change. So for example, if a student typically was removed from a situation when the behavior occurred, for instance, uh, it seemed to occur to gain escape from the situation, then we need our responsive strategies to involve avoiding that outcome. We need to have strategies that allow us to keep him in that situation 
or at least keep him there until we can reinforce a replacement behavior. So what might be included in responsive strategies? There are several considerations that we want to think about in terms of responding, but it's important that they be as complete as possible to help staff know what to do. Otherwise, you could end up sabotaging your whole behavior plan because the behavior problem may still be getting reinforced. The first thing you want to make sure to include or specifically eliminate in your responsive strategies are the responses that have happened in the past when the student misbehaved. So the responses from the environment that are maintaining the behavior are the ones that we are going to change. So for instance, when a student whose behavior functions to escape from group situations is removed from the morning meeting following disruptive behavior, then we need to try to avoid removing the student in this situation because it serves to reinforce the behavior. So the behavior is just going to continue because we're continuing the same outcome. Continue the same outcome, you get the same behavior. Now, I realize that that's a lot easier said than done, because I know that when you've got him in morning meeting and he has a problem, it's going to throw everybody off. It's going to be very disruptive. That's one of the reasons that he's always been removed. Um, And certainly keeping him in the activity while he's disrupting the class is part of the problem. So we need to think about how we can arrange our responses so that we can minimize the reinforcement for the student and control the disruption to the whole class. And there are a few things that we can use to do this. One of the primary ones that we use is redirecting to replacement behaviors. Assuming that you've identified replacement behaviors as part of your earlier part of your plan, and that you're teaching them when the challenging behavior is not happening, which I talked about in episode 16, you can redirect the student to use that strategy at the first sign of challenging behavior. So let's talk about an example. If in your FBA, you identified behaviors that lead up to bigger behaviors. So for example, he starts whining before he starts screaming. That's a good cue for when to introduce the redirection. Introduce it at the less intense problem. So I prompt him with a visual to ask for a break when he starts to whine. If he doesn't ask immediately, I might gesture or point. And eventually I may physically prompt him to hand me the break card and then remove him from the situation. Having to do that isn't ideal. I'd love to just keep him there, but it's giving him a chance to ask independently and it's reinforcing the break request. So he gave me the break card and now he gets out of the activity. It's also going to make it less likely that we're going to be disrupting the whole classroom or the whole activity long-term. So yes, doing this may simultaneously reinforce the behavior, but it's making the challenging behavior less efficient at getting reinforcement than the break request. And I talked about efficiency of responses when I talked about replacement behaviors in episode 16. I'll make sure that's linked underneath this episode. Now, as an aside, I don't ask him if he needs a break. I know that it's one of the things I see people do a lot is, do you need a break? I don't want him to wait for me to ask him. I want him to learn to initiate that request. So even if he's verbal, I use a visual cue to remind him to ask. 
You want to make sure that you're teaching him and practicing asking for a break when there are no problems as well. So that instruction outside the challenging behavior is important. You also want to make sure that he has access to that break card at all times. You don't want it to just appear when there's a problem because then you're not giving him the control and learning to initiate. I can't initiate a request for a break if I use a card and there's no card. So just keep those things in mind when you put this in place. You can redirect, which then short circuits the behavior, but you want to make sure that you're doing it in a way that isn't sabotaging and just making him more dependent on you. Otherwise, you're managing the environment for him more than he is learning to manage the environment. The great thing about this approach is that you're using the problem as a teaching opportunity for him to experience the consequence of escaping from that activity, from that morning meeting. And once he gets a break, then you can remove him. So that short circuits having to work through the behavior and wait him out. And that keeps it from disrupting the whole rest of the classroom for long periods of time. Again, as an aside, in a one-to-one situation, it might be possible to work through and just keep presenting the activity that he doesn't want to do. But that's hard to do in a classroom when you have the rest of the classroom that you have to think about. And it doesn't really teach him what to do instead. It really just teaches him that you aren't going to let him out of this situation. But he may still demonstrate that behavior in other situations with people who haven't done that. So it's admirable to try to want to work through the behavior and just tolerate it, but it's not really teaching him the skill to be more independent. Also in our responsive strategies, we can use consequence-based strategies. So we may use behavior management strategies that include things like timeout, going to the principal's office, losing points, losing a token on a behavior system, or losing privileges. All of these are strategies that are designed and typically used to make the behavior decrease. So in the technical term that ABA uses, they are forms of punishment. We are giving an outcome that hopefully is going to make the behavior decrease. The advantage is that using them often removes the problem quickly um, from the classroom situation. So if I send him to the principal's office, he's not in my room right now. Number two, the consequences may stop the behavior from escalating at times, because if I take his token off his board, that might be enough to make him behave. The cautions in using these caution-based strategies, consequence-based strategies, are to make sure that they match the function of behavior. Because if you use timeout, for instance, for escape-related behavior, you're going to increase the problem behavior rather than decrease it because you're reinforcing it. So make sure that your consequences match the opposite of the function. So if your function is to escape, don't use an escape-related consequence strategy. You also want to make sure that the consequence is something that is punishing for the student. If the student doesn't care about the reinforcer that he is earning with the token system, losing tokens is not going to be an effective consequence. And you also want to make sure that you're not taking everything away. And I find this to be particularly true for our students with emotional behavior disturbances and other types of problems. It's true for everybody. 
if the student gets so far in the hole in terms of his token system or the privileges that he has or things like that, at some point, he's just going to stop being invested in the system at all. So if you're in a situation where you're taking everything away from him, you have nothing else to use if your focus is primarily consequence-based. That's one of the reasons we do the replacement behaviors. That's one of the reasons that we teach the other skills. That's why we have preventive strategies in place because consequence-based strategies by themselves may end up running out and you don't have anything else to go to. So just keep those things in mind. In addition to consequence-based strategies and cueing for replacement behaviors, there are other strategies that we can use that will allow us to respond to the behavior without reinforcing it. One of our main goals of responsive strategies, assuming that you've got strong preventive and replacement strategies in place, is to make sure that we're not reinforcing the problem behaviors. That has to be one of our primary goals. Just telling our staff not to reinforce it isn't going to do it, though. So we need to design specific actions that they're either to do or avoid to assure that the behaviors aren't reinforcing. And you want those strategies to be used as consistently across the school as possible. You want to remember that reinforcement is like a slot machine. If you hit the jackpot just once, you keep on playing. So that consistency becomes particularly important or we run the risk of making the behavior more durable by intermittently reinforcing it. And we also run the risk of having the student engage in the behavior in specific environments or with specific staff because they pay off, much like my lucky slot machine in Vegas. So redirection is one of these strategies that we typically used. Typically, we're redirecting the student to an appropriate behavior. I like to use visuals like first then, contingency maps, or just showing them the visual of the behavior we want to see. And I will link to blog posts that I have. There are some free contingency maps in my TPT store. And in those free 30 videos that I told you about earlier, there is a video on how to use contingency maps. Some general tips on redirection. Always make sure that you are redirecting to the behavior that you want to see, not away from the problem. So instead of stop running, it's walking class, please. That's not because we're trying not to be negative. That is because when you say stop running, I heard running, ooh, running. If you say walk in class, I hear what I should be doing instead. In addition, if I stop running, what am I supposed to do? If you don't tell me what to do in its place, I don't have anything to replace it with. So redirect to an action, not the absence of an action. Stop X means that typically the student will hear X and that's likely to be his next behavior. So always redirect to what you want him to do instead. Also, use visuals. I use visuals for all students, not just for students with autism. When someone is upset, their language comprehension is typically compromised to some degree. Consequently, language is often not processed effectively or quickly because their mind is on other things. Pictures are processed much faster than speech. So when I'm upset, it's really hard for me to read something and make sense of it if I'm really, really in a heightened state of arousal. So in addition, using visuals also takes the power struggle out of the situation many times. So you can argue with someone telling you what you 
telling you what to do, but I can't argue with picture directions. And there is a video in the 30 video free videos on using visual redirection. And so it actually walks you through how to do different kinds of redirection, and it demonstrates how to present the visual. So you may want to use that with your staff. In addition, visuals reduce the amount of attention that we're paying to the behavior so they can give the student information without talking to him and giving him attention. So if the behavior is maintained by any kind of attention, visuals will reduce the reinforcement of that negative behavior. Also, next up in our redirection, wait the student out. First, we need to give him or her time to process the direction or the redirection that we're giving. Many of our students have difficulty with that, so we need to make sure we give them time. And second, if we're using visuals, you know that you've given a clear direction. Now you've got to wait for him to follow through. You want to avoid repeating your direction or trying to argue or bargain with the student because that's just going to teach him to be used car salesman. <laughs> that's just going to teach him that he can bargain with you. So you want to avoid that. You also want to individualize your redirection depending on the student. So these are general guidelines that work for many, many students, but your student may have unique characteristics and you need to outline how to redirect within the responsive strategy so that everybody knows how to do it effectively. And the final element of responsive strategies are assuring safety. So sometimes the strategies can be included just as responsive strategies, but sometimes you need a written crisis plan because one of our goals in responsive strategies has to be making sure that everyone remains safe. Hopefully the strategies that you've used thus far will prevent the behavior from escalating to an unsafe level, but at some point the behavior may escalate to a level of a crisis. I define a crisis as a situation in which the student is not responding to redirection and is attempting to hurt himself or others. If the student has ever demonstrated this kind of behavior with you before, you really want to have a crisis plan in place. It's a plan that tells everyone who may have to intervene with this student specifically what to do. And it may or may not include removal or protection strategies depending on your situation and the nature of the behavior. Now, if you are a member of the Special Educator Academy, we actually have a quick win on crisis plans with examples. So definitely check that out if you're a member. You have to make sure that the student is safe and that those around him are safe. In a crisis, that should be your focus. It shouldn't be whether or not he understands what he's doing is wrong. It should be whether or not everybody is safe. Also, if you have strategies in place to physically intervene with the student in some way, make sure that you've had a conversation with the family before you implement the crisis plan if you can. Make sure that you and they are clear about the conditions under which those strategies will be used. When I write a crisis plan, there are specific strategies, regardless of whether the district uses CPI or PCM or any of the many crisis uh, training protocols out there, there are certain things that I really insist on. And most good PCI and, and all of those will include this. The first is to avoid touching the student if at all possible. Only physically intervene if the student is in danger or placing himself in danger, placing someone else in danger, and you don't have another alternative. 
If you can block the behavior and keep everybody safe, do that. If you can remove the other students and keep everyone safe, do that. Block and avoid as much as possible before you touch the student. Putting your hands on someone when they are upset is the quickest way to escalate the behavior. It will not make it better. And that's true for all of us. That's not just our students. When you're in a state of high emotion, someone touches you, touching you can also often result in your becoming more upset, especially if you aren't feeling safe at the time. Second is when you're intervening with a student in crisis, use visuals more than verbal interactions as much as possible. And I touched on this earlier. When a person is in a heightened state of emotion, it's harder to process language than pictures. So if you're using any type of verbal redirection, use soft, quiet tones of voice and avoid getting louder. Getting louder to match the loudness of the student will escalate the situation rather than de-escalate it. You need to recognize that the crisis is not the time that the student is going to learn how to behave better. It is not a learning opportunity. It is not a time to think you are giving consequences or meaningful responses to change the behavior. Instead, it's just a time to make sure that everyone is safe. And then you want to make sure that you've got a procedure in place for debriefing when the crisis is over. So, Make it a productive, proactive session of brainstorming ways that we want to avoid this. I have a crisis incident form. If you're in the academy, it's part of the quick win that I use with teams to have them review how the situation arose, what happened, and to plan out what they're going to do in the future to avoid it happening again. Because again, having the same thing happen over and over is just the definition of insanity. If the student is involved, I might use, I might bring the student in as long as it's not a judgment session, I might do a debriefing with the student. So I might use a social autopsy form. And that's simply a form that requires them to think about how did we get here? What did I do? What was the problem? And how can I avoid it in the future? And there is actually a free social autopsy form in the resource library as well. So whether you include the student or not, the debriefing needs to take place when everybody's calm. Don't do it right after the event. Give everybody time to calm down and kind of de-stress. So where the student goes and what he or she does after the crisis is over depends on the function of the behavior and the plan that you've developed. Sometimes it might make sense to go to a quiet area with easy tasks and then integrate back into the day. Sometimes your student may need to go back to the situation they were in because they avoided it with that behavior. That depends on what your FBA data says and your team's decisions. So those are just some things to think about when we think about how do we respond to challenging behavior. We want to make sure that we aren't reinforcing it. We want to make sure that we've got plans to keep people safe. And we want to make sure that we've thought out what our responses are going to be and that we've shared it in writing. I will share an example of kind of a flow chart that I sometimes use with uh, a specific student. So this is actually one that was developed based on an individual behavior plan so that you can kind of see a way to lay it out even more visually for staff. I would love to hear more about what you think about all of this and what your experiences with this have been. Definitely come share them in our free social group at specialeducatorsconnection.com.
And if you're interested in more information about the Special Educator Academy, go to specialeducatoracademy.com and I'll put both of those in the show notes as well. Don't forget to go check out the 30 free videos and the social autopsy and printables in the free resource library that will be in the show notes as well. Thank you for sharing this time with me. I really appreciate your interest in the podcast. I would love for you to go to iTunes and write a review or just give a review, whether you like it or not. Um, and if you like the podcast, definitely subscribe on your favorite podcast episode as well. And you can always find episodes and the latest episode, as well as transcripts at autismclassroomresources.com slash the podcast. I hope to see you again next week for a new episode.